And so when I think about the ways that historically we view diversity, it's more so like, hey, come over to a dinner party, you know, come over, have a meal. You're welcome. Make yourself at home. But there's no closet space for me there. There's no drawer for me there. There's no ownership that this is equally mine. It's not make yourself at home. It is you are home. How does our definition of success shape how we live our daily lives? Join me, your host, Michael Bauman, as we learn from some of the top leaders and experts in the world, from CEOs to neuroscientists, Broadway directors, and more, about how to engineer success in every area of our lives. Welcome to Success Engineering. So welcome back to Success Engineering with your host, Michael Bauman. So I have Dr. Dana E. Crawford on. She's a pediatric and clinical psychologist who developed the Crawford Bias Reduction Theory and Training, which is a systematic approach to actually reducing bias, prejudice, and racism. And she has a ton of degrees in in pretty much everything from counseling and psychology to African-American studies. She has certifications in medical hypnosis and biofeedback, and she's worked with the National Black Caucus to create legislation for black maternal health equity, presented all over the United States in corporations, schools to help promote diversity, inclusion, reduce systemic racism. I'm really, really excited for this conversation. She has a tremendous amount of insight. So welcome to the show, Dana. I'm, I'm happy to have you. Oh, thank you so much, Michael. I'm super excited to be here. And thank you for a wonderful platform, Success. We all should be talking about that. Yes, it is It is really important to think about how we define it and then how can we actually create it in our life? Um, because if we don't if we don't think about those things, sometimes we just def- default to the, what society establishes for us. And I know that's something that you have done a ton in terms of helping people create that in a different terminology than than what I'm doing. But I'm I'm excited to have you. So I wanted to start off with um, just kind of your experiences in in childhood around racism. So you had some of these experiences around race racism in the classroom and, and growing up. Can you just kind of share that to give some background um, to set set us up for what what you end up developing later on? Yeah, it's so interesting because I you know feel as if my entire life has led me to the position, the place that I'm in right now. And some of the early childhood experiences that I wasn't even aware of at that time um, were definitely anchored in racism and sexism um, in classism. And one of the earliest memories that I have um, related to race was when I was in sixth grade I sat in this pod and these pods are like these little uh, four desk situations Mm -hmm. where you're like sitting in front of someone and someone is to your left or your right. And that's like your group where you learn and experience different things. And so I was in this pod and I had this one girl that just annoyed me to no end. And I will say in advance that I was probably pretty mean to this kid. She just really annoyed (laughs) me. And what annoyed me about her is that she had a really perfect life. She was a little white girl. Her name was Hope. Um, Hello, Hope, wherever you are in the world. (laughs) And her mom made all her clothes and she had a sister named Faith 
faith and charity. And they were just a perfect little family. And she was so naive, right? So mm. when I would say I was studying, I was struggling with something, she would go, well, why, why? Like if my clothes didn't look a certain way, well, how come your clothes aren't perfect? And I just, oh, hope. Mm. And um, she had like this homemade, this little haircut. You could tell her mom cut her hair herself. And one day I was just like, oh my gosh, hope. You are so homely. And she had this look on her face, like I had said something horrific to her. And she ran to the teacher. And I'm going to say some hate language in a moment to repeat what the teacher said. Not that I use this language. And she ran to the teacher and she said, Dana called me, hate language here, a homo. And I Mm. said, no, I didn't. I would never. I didn't say that. I said you were homely. And the teacher said, your people don't know those big words. Oh, wow. And I didn't understand what she meant because I just used the word. (laughs) So obviously I knew it. Um, And I just felt this shame come over me. And I didn't understand it. You know, I was being reprimanded by my white teacher. And it was something about your people. And it didn't feel like my people in this pod that I was sitting in. There was just something that felt so fundamental to who I was. And I just shut down and I went and sat down. And I remember the rest of that year, I just hung my head really low whenever Mm -hmm. I interacted with this teacher. And it wasn't something that I could really share with my mom. You know, it wasn't like I could go home and say, mom, I was totally bullying this kid because her mom makes her clothes and she annoys me. Like, how can can Mm -hmm. you even process something like that? What are the words? Um, And my teacher reprimanded me for calling this kid a name. But as I look back and I think about that, your people, it felt very racialized, especially being that I was one of the only students of color in that classroom. And so that was in sixth grade. An earlier memory, when I was around four years old, um, I was in this preschool class and I just remember it being really loud because I was four. You know, how many your memories (laughs) at this age are fuzzy. And I was in this class with my cousin, Marcus, and he is just still one of my favorite humans. He's seven months older than me. So I was born into a best friendship with him. And he was running around the class and everyone was running around. It was during like clean up, clean up. And the teacher was like, everyone better get in their seats um, before I finish this bell or this whatever the kid thing was. It was like a bell or a bing or something like that. And um, he was kind of slow. He was a little chunky, so sweet and adorable. And he was one of the last kids to get in the seat. And the teacher hit him with a book. Oh, man. And he started crying. And she said something. And it was something along the lines of like, it's okay, I'll hit you. Your people better get used to being hit. Mm. And it was just such, like, I remember now being so confused. And it, it, feels viscerally in my body, like a dimming of a light. Um, And then I just kind of went on and I I remember going home and I somehow communicated that the teacher hit my cousin and he didn't have the language. He was just a sweet little, just yumminess and wasn't, he was just like, you know, whatever. But I knew something really wrong had happened to him. And they actually, my parents, his mom, my mom um, took us out of that preschool immediately. Mm -hmm. And so they were really on top of it. But I remember knowing something really fundamental was wrong. When it became a lot clearer for me that racism was on the scene was in middle school. And I had this teacher named Mr. France. 
and he taught history. And at that point in my life, I had been reading a lot. I'd read a lot about African-American history. I had all of these books that were like the first school was in Africa and these wonderful experiences. And I was, you know, that was what I was naturally gravitating towards when I would go to the library. I loved history. And so I read all of these beautiful books. And I I think around that time, the movie with Denzel Washington, Malcolm X had come out. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, this is the most amazing thing ever. Black people standing up for our rights. I'm going to, like, grow up and save black people. That was like my stage in life. And I had just (laughs) learned about enslavement. And I was just like, all these horrible things that have happened to black people, like, I'm going to save us. And it was coming off of... um, all of the the very toxic language around like crack babies and the news we all know now that is a myth. Um, the idea of crack babies and all the statistics you can Google that yourself. But it was that that was in the ether, right? Like that was the message. Like oh, welfare moms, crack babies, enslavement, and I wanted to rescue and save black people. Fast forward to the class with Mr. France history. Older white gentleman. And I remember he started off our history lesson and he was like, Columbus discovered America. And at this age of my life, I have to say I was pretty bold. um, (laughs) And I just said, you need to stop lying to these kids. (laughs) Like I wasn't one of them. And I raised my hand and I said, Mr. France, stop lying to these kids. And he was like, what are you talking about? And I said, Columbus didn't discover America. And I quoted something from like this Malcolm X movie, like we didn't land on Plymouth Rock, Plymouth Rock landed on us. And he's like, get out. Mm -hmm. And it started a series of me being kicked out of class. Um, out of history class, basically every day. And my peers started to get really annoyed and they would be like, oh, here comes Dana with this race stuff again. And this was at this point, a pretty diverse class. I went to school on a military base. Um, My family was civilian at that point, but it was the public school was on the military base. And so it was a really diverse setting. And the kids were just annoyed because I was very disruptive. And the teacher was pretty annoyed because I was saying he was lying every day. And so what ended up happening is there was a science teacher right across the hall from me. And he would kick me out of his class and send me to her class, Miss Buckley. And so I ended up having double science. And she was so lovely. And she would talk to me about the objectivity of science, that it doesn't matter your race, very much colorblind, that science can liberate us. And that was the beginning of my love of science as a pathway to trying to be liberated from the socially transmitted disease that is racism that all of my peers and my teachers and the world is infected with. But at that point, I thought science might actually be a way to get out of it. Yeah. And so those are some of the early learnings. I have so many of those stories because I've been really privileged to have opportunities in my education to reflect on these things. As a psychologist, I've written about a lot of these things just from a personal psychoanalytic stance and then also as a poet. Um, So a part of my life, I lived a lot in like journals and writing poetry um, about my emotions and what I was seeing. And I would write all these like poems about these experiences. And so that allowed me um, to really start to understand in a more global humanity way of how children become infected with racism, prejudice, and bias. Mm. Can you can you talk about that and just kind of lay out some of the even the different age ranges where you'll start to see those things that are almost like pre-encoded into into how children begin to operate with the world? 
Yeah, so it's really interesting. And this isn't my research. This is the research from a plethora of scholars that have explored racism, prejudice, and bias across the developmental spectrum. And so what the data shows is children at around three months old, little sweet little babies, they still smell like new skin, you know, brand new smell. (laughs) Um, They actually look at the faces of people that match the race of their caregivers, not their own, right? So if it's a sweet little black baby adopted by, um, let's say a Chinese family, they're gonna be looking more at Chinese faces, right? And I think a lot of that has to do with resources, right? That's my theory that, you know, they look at those faces and they're like, those are the faces that bring me milk. Those are the faces that change me. Those are the ones that are loving on me. Um, That's what I'm looking for in the world. And so then, you know, it's a lot more about human survival. However, at about two years old, children start to reason about behavior based on race. At two and a half, they actually start to choose their playmates based on race. And around four or five years old, you see kind of a a plateau of racialized ideas and ideas. conceptions and understanding of race. And around that age, Black and Hispanic or Latinx children show no preference, right? So that two and a half age where they're picking by playmates kind of fades out. But this is the age that white children start to prefer white children, Mm -hmm. and they show a preference for whiteness. And that really has to do with the ways that children are socialized. You know, you go to the store, and now there might be a few dolls that are not white, but the center is often white. And I live in Harlem, New York, which is a predominantly black neighborhood in Manhattan. And I can go to the store and not find black dolls, right? And so when whiteness is centered in the toys that children um, play with, when they're centered in the books that they read, in the Disney or movies that they're watching, where there may be characters that are not white, but the center main character, the the main narrative, the character that you have access to their intra-psychic experiences, the voiceover character, has generally been white. And so children, by default, prefer what they can connect to, what they've been exposed to. And we know that play is a child's work. Play is how children make sense of the world and how they come to reason. And so those are the everyday ways and their social experiences. But you also have to think about family relationships. So generally, a lot of people tend to spend the most time with people that are most similar to them. And so if you are around, if you have white parents, then you probably, your parents have probably a lot of white friends, and then you probably live in a really white community. And there may be some, you know, one person here, one person there, that's a bit of an outlier, but it's not your primary connections. And so the critical piece is that children at a very young age are exposed to diversity in a way that no single group is centered. Instead, we have to be striving for a circle way where there is no single group, no single identity that is the primary, but instead everyone, it becomes very much a casual thing. Like, yes, um, I have black hair. You have blonde hair. You have dark skin. I have light skin. You have blue eyes. I have brown eyes. You have green eyes. You know, And it's just we're different in the world the same way that we might wear different clothing, we might um, prefer different foods, and it becomes something that is not ignored. It is celebrated. It is beautiful. It is used language like, isn't it really cool that 
your brother's skin is this color and your dad's skin is that color and your best friend is that color. Wow. I wonder how it looks in the summer. I wonder how it looks in the spring. And um, it's just a casual incorporated way of thinking of the world. And so without that intentionality, what we see is that children at a very young age start to make reasoning, um, reason about behaviors, reason about race and connect those two things. And it's not, the problem isn't race. The problem is racism. It's not that children see race that's a problem. It's how they prescribe behavior, the ways that they prescribe worth based on that race. And children are exposed to that in their social media and in their relationships to prescribe that race is related to behavior. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's really interesting that you're, you're mentioning that. So I actually grew up in Papua New Guinea and I went to an international school and we had, you know, probably 30 people in, in my graduating high school class. But I think as far as nationalities go, it was maybe like 12 or 13. And it was really interesting. It was kind of what you were describing. Like there was people from all over the world, you know, from Australia and Malaysia and Korea and the States and, you know, tons of different other parts of Europe and, you know, Papua New Guinea, obviously. And it was never really something that I thought about until coming back to the U.S. for college. Um, and so I, I find that interesting that you you mentioned that. And it's even interesting too. That's one of the reasons why we're here in China. You know, we have the opportunity to let our kids from a very young age be exposed to lots of different cultures. And it's a really high value for, for me and my wife. But I wanted to kind of ask, I'd love to hear how you would define racism. So in my research, I found, you know, just a really interesting way that you kind of define that. And I'd love for you to just kind of answer how you define racism. Yeah, so racism, it's racism, it's bias, it's prejudice, it's an ism, right? So in China, it may not be the concern isn't racism, but there is classism and there are perceptions related to education. To me, racism is viewing, it's a socially transmitted disease. It's viewing someone's ability, their intellect, their worth, who they are in the world through the lens of their race. And because it is a socially transmitted disease, it's the ways in which we understand our relationship to other. So it's not intentional. You know, a lot of people are like, I'm not racist. I'm a good person. The two have nothing to do with each other. What you do about that ism, what you do about that racism, that sexism, that homophobia, that queerphobia, what you do is what we're distinguishing, you know, good and bad people, if there's such a thing to be able to determine people in such a finite way, but let's just pretend like that could exist. To me, I know some people who are absolutely lovely and are very much infected with racism, right? Saturated. Mm -hmm. And then I know some other people who have done a lot of work and are constantly thinking about how they're exposed to racism. So they're watching, you know, a TV show and they're like, oh, wow, look how that character was perceived. That might impact how I think about someone when I go outside my door and I'm interacting, right? And so they're constantly trying to get at the heart of the ways that their brains are being manipulated to view people a certain way. And that same person who is very aware of their own racism might be completely blind to their ableism. 
right? And so all of these ways that we perceive each other, we connect with each other, we disconnect, at the core of it, in my theory, is that it's about resources and fear. So social identity, social categories allow us to have quick and dirty ways of putting people in boxes, right? So you're a man, I can put you in this box. You're a woman, I can put you in this box. You're not binary, oh, you go in a different box, right? And once I'm able to put you in that box, I can determine what your resource needs are, how I'm going to get resources, how do I generate resources, how do I control resources? And that's a global phenomenon. You know, we can look, use social identities to determine which groups have greater access to medical care, which groups have better access to education, what are the ways that we funnel people through systems for resources. And then what comes into play with fear is that everyone needs to survive. Right? We all have values. And so when we are afraid that our resources will be adjusted, we defend those resources and we create structures to keep those resource distribution systems in place. And that's where you see a lot of backlash when there are shifts and conversations about like, oh, this group should have more access. We should be thinking about doing things this way. And people get, no, 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 no. The world is changing too much, right? It's the response to fear of change that resources might be adjusted. Hmm. Yeah, I loved that. When I was when I was doing the research, I, I really loved that definition around racism being like a resource distribution system um, and looking at it through that lens of, of fear and scarcity and what happens when there is scarcity around resources and how does that affect, like you mentioned, the the perception of other. Can you can you talk about just some of the statistics around the negative effects of racism um, in the U.S. in terms of you know medical, what's what's gone on through COVID, um, however you want. I know you have a lot of statistics around that, but can you talk about just how it's a very real um, present present um, issue and problem? Yeah, and it's really you know it's such a painful thing to think about when we very explicitly link racism to medical outcomes, to educational outcomes. So we know that um, little black boys, preschool boys are significantly more likely uh, to be expelled from preschool, Mm -hmm. which to me is absolutely absurd to consider a child being expelled from preschool. Um, I know you have a young child, you have two young children like myself. And I remember when my son was starting preschool and this was after for two and a half years, he had been home with us because of COVID um, and because of his age. And we were deciding to um, put him in preschool, a lovely preschool, amazing, could not say enough things about this preschool. Just love it. However, I am also aware of the subconscious mind and the ways that um, what the statistics show from this beautiful work from Walter Gilliam, he talks about eye tracking. And so what he did was this study where he asked preschool teachers um, to watch the behaviors of children in the classroom. And it was a double-sided mirror. um, And so the kids were on the other side and the preschool teachers were watching the kids through the mirror. And he said, you know, see which kids may have behavioral issues. The teachers watched the kids and something like 33% of them said that the black boys in the class had some really bad problems. And what they saw in this study, which was really interesting, is that 
actually none of the kids had any behavioral issues. <laughs> they were just kids. There was nothing wrong with these kids. They were just well-behaved, lovely kids. And he wasn't interested specifically in how they ranked the behavior of the children, but who they watched. And so what they found is that preschool teachers watch the behavior of boys more. And if you've met a kid, you, we all know that if you watch them, you will find something that they're getting into, right? Because <laughs> kids are just notorious for just getting into exploratory mischief, right? And so if you're watching these kids, you're going to see some things. And so boys were watched the most. Black boys were watched more than anyone else. And so even in that, you know, you see gender and you also see race, right? So when we think about the ways that boys are not as successful in formalized school in our in our country, we're starting to see a shift in the educational experiences of boys when we think about race. Um, and what's interesting in these statistics is that white boys and black boys may engage in the exact same behaviors, but how the school responds to those behaviors are significantly different. So if a little white boy hits a peer, um, it might look like having the parent come in and having a conversation and making a behavior plan and teaching him some calm down messages or methods where with a little black boy, it's going to be a lot more disciplinary. You're going to get a timeout. Um, you're going to get reprimanded. Your parent is going to be told, we're not going to allow this behavior to happen. We can't let kids hit each other. There are safety concerns, right? And so even the ways that children are engaged in these behaviors that are quite normative, you know, kids hit kids all the time. Um, <laughs> and what leads to the outcome after that? So those same little black boys, um, which is pretty horrifying, kids that are expelled from preschool, there is a direct pipeline to the children who are expelled in preschool have something like, and I don't know the exact statistic, but it's like 60% more likely to end up in prison. And if you look at kids or adults that were in prison, there is a direct link to them being expelled at a very early age from a school system. Mm -hmm. And so we've created a pipeline that if a preschooler is expelled from, a black boy is expelled from preschool, you can very much see the ways that he's going to be more likely to go to prison. Now, that's at the preschool level. I think about some of the more vulnerable, the other vulnerable populations. So there's a statistic that looks at medical trainees and 50 percent of medical trainees coming into medical school, perceiving that black people have less sensitive nerve endings, and thicker skin. So believing the myth that Black people feel less pain. And, Mm -hmm. you know, to me, there's a lot of theories about the opioid crisis um, Mm -hmm. and why it hasn't impacted the Black community, because we can't get pain meds from medical providers. Mm -hmm. Our pain is not treated. Um, And then you think about another population, which is, to me, really near and dear, and that's birthing people, birthing women. And the the statistic is a black female doctor is three to five times more likely to die in childbirth than a 17-year-old white girl in a trailer park. And so what that statistic points out is regardless of education, regardless of income, regardless of age, race has a greater present per a greater contribution in a black woman surviving childbirth. And the statistic nas- nationally is three to five times. In New York City, it's nine to 12 times more likely to die in childbirth. And the reason I, I like to point out New York's numbers is because 
you know, there's a lot of regional bias in the U.S. that, you know, the South is the racist region of the country and the North is, you know, Northeast. We're right. woke, you know, like we get it. But it's interesting because the South desegregated, the North never did. And New York City, New York State is one of the most segregated educational school systems in the country. Mm. Well, yeah, those are, those are statistics are, I mean, just crazy. Um, and you know, that kind of lays the, the groundwork for, for what you do. So, you know, that's, that's the, the problem, so to speak. And, and you've created a, a solution to it, something that works to reduce, um, these biases. So can you talk about, um, Crawford bias reduction theory and, you know, kind of the steps around it and how it takes people from awareness to actually making action, taking action on this? Absolutely. So this work for me in a very formalized way started when I was in grad school doing my PhD in the cornfields of Ohio. And um, it was really a similar time period. You know, I I call these times in our lives uh, cultural consciousness waves where the world decides, you know what, whatever this thing is, how we are resourcing people, um, excluding people is bad. Right. So right now it's, you know, we're coming off, I think, actually decreasing our interest in it now. But um, this experience of a, a post George Floyd, post Breonna Taylor, where people are really recognizing racism, anti-black racism um, and COVID, you know, we're seeing anti-Asian racism. And so people saying, absolutely not. We need to do something. We need to come together. We need to stop Asian hate, you know, all of those things. When I was in grad school, it was right after Hurricane Katrina, and it was a time where it became really clear that in nas- uh, national disasters or natural disasters, that cities that were pre- predominantly Black um, were not resourced in the same ways. And so New Orleans, um, after Hurricane Katrina, did not get the same amount of resources, and it was a lot of um, awareness related to racism. And so what happens when people become more aware, because people are generally good, I, I generally, I truly believe that, um, when we become aware that people are being mistreated and it's on our radar, we come together and say, we need to stop that, and especially academics. And so when I applied for my PhD program, it was right around this time where diversity became like the God, like we need more diversity. We recognize <laughs> we're way too white, right? <laughs> like this is not good. <laughs> Um, and so I was admitted to the most diverse doctoral class that they had had in many years, if ever. And when I say diverse, I mean, they had two black women. They had someone who um, was a lesbian. They had someone from India. They had someone with a learning <laughs> disability. They had someone with a physical disability. Like they were checking those boxes off very well intentioned. Um, however, they hadn't done any actual diversity work. And so what I was experiencing was a lot of really good intentions, but some really painful microaggressions. And so microaggressions are the the everyday slights, little things that people say that seem like they're harmless, but they definitely erode um, at a person's confidence, at their comfort, at their sense of belonging. It does things like make people feel like you don't belong here. And so, for instance, a microaggression might be people saying things like, oh, my gosh, you're so pretty for a black girl, mm-hmm. you know, um, saying something like, wow, you really are articulate. You speak so well as if I wouldn't. 
Um, these little things are like, wow, you're good at math. I'm not good at math, but like you're good at math for a woman. <laughs> um, these little things that, you know, really reveal the expectations someone might have based on someone's social identity. And so I was experiencing these microaggressions and I didn't really know what they were. I was just feeling like, I don't like this place. Why don't I feel comfortable in these cornfields of Ohio? Like, I know I'm not, you know, from the Midwest, but it feels more than that. And so as I was having these experiences from some lovely professors um, and intentions, I just said, you know, it feels like racism. It feels like sexism. It feels like classism. And so I just started asking the question, how does culture come up for you in the therapy room? for therapists. And I just asked therapists all over the country that question. Um, I asked them, how do you define yourself culturally? How do you understand culture in therapy? And it was striking, you know, and I would get things like one participant had said, I'm an older white man. And he was someone that I'd read in the literature for years. I grew up in undergrad reading his research and he participated in my study. And that was amazing. And he said, you know, a lot of black kids don't connect with me because I'm an old white guy and they don't think I can help them. And I really can. And I'm a really great therapist. And it makes, it breaks my heart that I'm not able to connect more with more diverse patients. Later in the interview, we were just casually talking and he said, you know, my neighborhood where my practice is, is really changing. You know, there's a lot of violence. And sometimes, you know, I watch the news and people are killed. And when I watch the news and I'm watching it and it's not a white person, I'm not so worried, you know, because it's not a white person being harmed. Mm. And I thought, you know, how much your patients probably pick on that you don't pick up on the fact that you don't value their life in the same way that you value the lives of people that look like you. And so this guy, really talented, wonderful, and still this was there. And I had so many, I could go into the interviews and all of that for my dissertation, But what ended up happening is that I became very aware that therapists are not blank slates. We are not the tabula rasas that Freud challenged us to be. But instead, (laughs) in the same ways that that little 12-year-old Dana um, was experiencing racism in the classroom, that same experience goes to the therapy room. And I wish that it was just in the therapy room. It goes to the exam room. It goes back to the classroom. It shows up on the subway. It shows up everywhere. We do not exist in silos. And so I wasn't comfortable with just increasing people's awareness. I wanted to do something about it. And so um, I developed a model that presented this theory related to resources, but also challenged people to do something about it. And so what CBRT does, the Crawford Bias Reduction Theory and Training, it's three core components. One is about awareness and the awareness of shifting the conversation away from this moral issue of being good or bad and all of that, but instead saying we're all infected with racism, prejudice, and bias. It's just what does your infection look like? It might be different from mine, but you still got it, right? Um, And so that first piece and what does it look like when it manifests for you? You know, how ableism shows up for me might be very different for how it shows up for someone else. What does it look like for you personally? The next is an investigation, and it's an investigation of how it manifests, 
how it shows up in the world, not just within you when you're sitting on your couch and you're watching some show that's pretty racist or sexist or biased, but what happens when you leave your couch and you're out in the world? And how does it show up individually? How does it show up interpersonally? So individually, it might be that I clutch my purse when I see someone with a certain body type, right? I feel really uncomfortable. Interpersonally, it might be that I say something that's a bit of a microaggression. Institutionally, I may not hire someone because their name sounds too ethnic, right? Mm. And so how does it manifest individually, interpersonally, and institutionally? And the next piece from that investigation is reduction. How do you reduce it? And so often, going back to that cultural consciousness wave, people react. And that reaction, although lovely that people get activated, is not sustainable. You cannot walk away, walk around feeling the pain of watching a recorded murder every day and function as a being. Like you just can't do it, right? Mm -hmm. No one has the capacity to be that sad, to be that devastated all the time. And also it's terrible for your kids. So like, no, you don't need to be that miserable, (laughs) right? And so what do we do with that reaction? Our goal is to look at why am I so activated It has to do with my values at my core, because we're all trying to be the best person we can be. At my core, I do fundamentally believe that people are equal, right? It's all the colorblind stuff. Like I do think that, but somehow in the world, that thought doesn't manifest into reality. And so how do we move from being emotion-driven to value-driven? Well, first, we have to be authentic. We have to be willing to be truthful about our bias. We have to be willing to look in the mirror and say, oh my gosh, I thought this thing about this person and it was gross. I said this thing. I didn't mean it that way, but it hurt them. I didn't hire someone. I didn't promote someone. I didn't you know, give resources. I wouldn't let my resources be adjusted. I didn't want people to come in my community. I didn't let my kid go to that school, right? It's about being honest. And then with that honesty, there's trustworthiness. You're worthy of the trust of someone else. The next piece is mindfulness. Our minds are so full, right? We cannot do this work. Racism is so sneaky. You know, it's not like you're going to get a calendar invite that says at 3 p.m. today, someone's going to say a microaggression. So you have a whole you know, morning to plan your, your response. Like it doesn't happen that way. It happens in a micro moment. And then you're laying in bed that night. Like, why did I not say something? Oh, my gosh, I didn't mean it that way. Well, I could have said this. And then you're like processing with your partner. Like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe. And what happens? Nothing. So it requires us to be mindful and to be aware of what is happening then we can develop a strategic and sustainable action plan and have a relationship with our values that are not just reactionary. And so that's the model. And so what my life looks like in teaching the model, it may be something as short as a podcast and a few moments of me explaining it. Um, or some organizations meet with me once a month for 90 minutes for years. Um, and sometimes it's consultation with leadership. Sometimes it's legislation. Um, but really the goal is to always be challenging people to be aware, to investigate, and to be reducing their racism, prejudice, and bias. And I hope, you know, there's a time that we can eradicate um, this work, but I, I don't know if that'll happen. We can eradicate racism, but right now it's reduction. Mm-hmm. So what are some, some 
you know, tips that you would say both on an individual level to build awareness around it, reduce it, you know, investigate it and reduce it. And then also how you kind of frame those sessions for organizations. Like how, what does that look like in terms of focusing on each one of those areas? So it really depends on what the organization is willing to commit to in their resources. So when I talk about resources, you know, that can sound really abstract. But some of the the biggest resources we have are our human resources and not the department, but like our time, our energy, our relationships. And so some organizations have the resource where they say, you know, we're going to meet with Dr. Crawford. We're going to give an hour and a half of our time in the medical system. That's a lot of time. Right. Mm -hmm. That is money on the table. If a physician is meeting with me for 90 minutes, they could essentially see 10 patients and be able to bill and generate a lot of revenue. And these aren't one-on-one meetings. These are, you know, it could be your entire department. So that could be 30 physicians, depending on if it's a hospital, it could be 300 people. That is real money. And that's a real resource. Some organizations don't have that. So they'll say, we'll meet one time. And I do a training and I talk a lot about what we're sharing here. And I provide some videos that are very activating. And then I give them some exercises to walk through it. And the core components are there's three things that I ask people to do. I want them to move their pen. I want them to move their jaw and I want them to move into action. And so every exercise is really about those three things, reflecting on what I'm giving you that is triggering. I'm talking about what is triggering. I'll pause here. One of the things that I didn't share about that data of kids and the ways that they understand racism. At five years old, children start to show a preference. White children show a preference for whiteness. But what we find is with explicit conversations about friendship, explicit conversations about diversity, within a week, seven days, children's attitudes about racism, about bias, change. Mm-hmm. And they become more equitable. Now, no one here listening has the brain of a five or seven year old, right? So it's going to require more than a week. You got many, many, <laughs> many, many weeks of bias built up that you need to be reducing. But the moving one's jaw is critical. So often people have these internal dialogues in their head and they're petrified to actually talk. And so then when they do talk, it looks like uh, black, uh, African-American, Asian, I mean, Chinese, I mean, you know, and people get really uncomfortable because we've all been taught, like, don't talk about this thing. Don't discuss it. And so what I do is create a space where people are not comfortable, but they are capable. You are Mm -hmm. capable of having tender conversations when you feel uncomfortable. And so it's the moving the jaw. And then it's moving into action and giving people really clear things. What can you do when you're a bystander? What can you say when someone says a microaggression? One of my favorite microaggression responses is a sound. So if someone was to say like, oh, you know, this group scene, this group of people might be really violent, you know, something microaggressive like that. I might go, whoo, oh, mm." and then you know Mm. what that person does? They go, why'd you make that sound? And now we're talking about it. Mm. They're now pondering, why did she respond that way to what I said? I guess maybe she didn't like it. Maybe she didn't agree with it. Versus if I'm silent, people assume that you agree. Mm. And so it looks like these types of things, um, really tender conversations, and then action work in between. People are grown, so I don't give people homework. But action work in between every session in in which they're meeting with me. Mm. 
Yeah, I really, I really appreciate that. And one of the things, you know, when I was doing the research around, around you and what you're doing, I, I really liked the, the distinction between diversity and inclusion. So where you have this diversity, when you went into, you know, um, Miami, you know, for your, for your program and it was diverse, but it wasn't like inclusive. And, and you had the quote basically it says like inclusion is about preparing the space so people can be comfortable when they actually get there. And that really stood out um, to me in terms of we're not just representing it, but we're actually going, how can we prepare a space that is allows these people with different values to actually feel like they're included. And that was something that really stood out to me in, in the research that I did. Yeah. Thank you for that quote. You know, when I think about this, um, it's sort of like if I'm bringing a baby home, if I am becoming partnered or married and someone is moving into my space or I'm moving into their space or I am deciding to take care of an elder, how I'm going to shift my home is going to be very different than if I'm having someone over for a dinner party. And so when I think about the ways that historically we view diversity, it's more so like, hey, come over to a dinner party, you know, come over, have a meal, you're welcome, make yourself at home. But there's no closet space for me there. There's no drawer Mm -hmm. for me there. Um, There's no ownership that this is equally mine. It's not make yourself at home. It is you are home. And that is really, to me, what belonging is. Inclusion is like, hey, here's a drawer. Belonging is like, hey, this is our home. What do you want to do with it? Do you like this paint? Let's change it. Actually, I'm going to paint all the walls white. So then when you come in, we can pick our paint together. Mm. And it's a recognition that me coming in could very well create something that you've never even imagined, Mm. right? And that is what we're lacking when we don't have diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, that we limit our ability to have innovation. When someone feels like they don't really belong, they're going to navigate that work a lot differently than they would if they had real ownership. How I am in my house is very different from how I am in anyone else's house, no matter how kind they are, no matter how considerate they are. You know, it is, um, I am as polite as a dinner guest, when in truth, we need to be thinking about how do we really incorporate home with people? Mm. And it, it comes to a space of often shared values. You know, I have found when I ask people to do value sorts and write down their values, most humans don't value vastly different things. Mm. It's just how you get to those values, how you live those values, what they look like, um, how you create space. But the values, it's you know things like love, it's safety, it's support, it's community, it's autonomy. Like these are these are core fundamental human needs um, that we often don't even have access to when we view someone as other. The most heartbreaking thing about racism and all of the isms is that they form a barrier to our humanity. We're not able to see the human in someone else because we view them as other, when in truth, you are me and I am you, and we are all navigating this planet of climate change together, right? (laughs) And so like, 
we got to come together on that. We need to be able to innovate and come up with solutions where I have full access to your thoughts and you have full access to my thoughts. And we are going to sit down together and figure out how we're going to do some things together. Mm. I, I really love that. I love looking at, you know, where, where are we, where are all the points that we're the same? And especially on a, a higher level like that, in terms of things that we, that we value and then starting from that place. And like you talked about, then you're going, how can we create something beautiful together that neither one of us, you know, the sum is greater than um, both of its parts, you know, kind of idea where it's like neither one of us has any idea about this, but together it's more beautiful than what it could have been separately. And I think that's just a beautiful, beautiful concept and, and very well um, presented as well. I really, I really appreciate that. Thank you. So, I mean, just incredible, incredible stuff. I, like I mentioned before, I just absolutely love what you're doing. I love everything about it. Um, I think it's incredibly important. Um, where, where can people go to, you know, participate and to learn from what you have, or even if there's other resources that you feel like would be beneficial, um, what, what are some of those things that would be helpful for people to start taking these, these steps towards a more inclusive, more a home for everyone involved? Yes, I think there's three things, you know, well, first, if you want to find resources related to me, um, the best place to find me is where a lot of us are, the internet, right? So like, (laughs) you can Google me, um, or or search me, whatever search engine you're using, um, DR Dana Crawford, Dr. Dana Crawford, um, and most platforms, all the social media, even my website is drdrcrawford.com. But you know, wherever you're listening to this, Where I invite you to start is with really looking in the mirror and not in a quick glance way, but in a a really like microscopic level at doing an assessment of where you are, of where have been some of the most activating moments in your experiences. And when I say activating, I mean the ways that you effectively, your emotions were triggered behaviorally, that you behaved in a way that you're like, why did I do that? Cognitively, when you went on an entire road trip in your mind about an interaction, and then physically, how your heart is beating when certain interactions occur. I'll give an example of activation. So I live in Harlem, um, which is a beautiful, historical, Black neighborhood that you know, one of my degrees is in African-American studies. And in that, um, my specialization in studying the history was Harlem. And I remember reading about all of these poets, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I lived a life where I was poet and an MC and traveled the world, actually shout outs to China. Um, I was in Chengdu um, and did some work there. And one of my dear friends was living in Chengdu and we did a hip hop show there, not speaking, you know, any Mandarin, but had a great time um, and traveled the world as an artist. And so I fell in love with Harlem on the page in the book. And then I pursued my PhD and I did my fellowship in um, San Antonio and my internship in New Orleans. And somehow I ended up in Harlem after all of that training. And I remember when I first moved here just walking around being like, oh my gosh, you know, that's where Angelina Wells, Grim K was, that's where this person, you know, and it was just so amazing. And so recently I moved to a brownstone 
And um, I went to put my daughter to bed and this music was blasting. And it was so, I mean, these speakers were like concert speakers right across the street from her window. (laughs) And it was like eight o'clock at night. So well past her bedtime. I'm a big fan of kids' brains getting a lot of sleep. And so it was really loud. And I went outside and my husband looked at me. He was like, you're going to go outside and ask these guys to turn down their music on the block? And, you know, I, I was like, yeah. Um, And it was two elder men, um, older than myself. Um, I know age is relative, you know, maybe in their their late 60s, 70s, um, blasting this music. And it was, you know, music my parents listened to. So it wasn't like shoot them up, you know, inward, aggressive, terrible, harmful music in a sense. It was like really loving, like Luther Vandross, but loud, (laughs) really loud. And I said, um, you know, at first glance, someone might say, oh, well, you're going to go over there and yell at them and say, turn your music down. And when I decided to go out and approach these gentlemen, my heart was beating so fast. And so what's the work for me to do there? Why? Why is it that talking to two black men who are blasting their music would make my heart beat? It would make my heart beat because I've seen all types of, you know, television shows and movies with black men becoming really aggressive when you ask them to do something, right? Like these are the ways that my brain has been socialized. Oh, these black men are going to get aggressive. They might shoot me. You know, I'm in this black neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Even if that's my community, you know, anti-blackness isn't something that is just owned by everyone who isn't black. Like I also experience anti-blackness within myself because of the ways that my brain has socialized and perceived and recognized how black people are um, portrayed in the world. And so I was like, oh, my gosh, these black men might shoot me. Right. So this I have to be honest Mm -hmm. about that fear. They might cuss me out. I got to be honest about that. So wherever you're listening, like when I say the first step is that honesty, it's not ignoring that. It's not like, oh, whatever. My heart's just I'm not even going to pay attention to my heart. I'm just going to go over here and be reactive. But I had to be mindful. And I thought to myself. As I'm walking and I've done a lot of work. So this happens in microseconds now. This is why you have to practice this. This is why you have to be on top of this. So you can do it quickly because racism is quick, right? Sexism is quick. It's so fast. Um, And so I'm thinking to myself, why on earth would two gentlemen that are this age be blasting this highly emotional music at eight o'clock at night? And instead of thinking, what is wrong with these people? I thought about the trauma-informed care question of what happened. What happened? Why would somebody do that? So I'm thinking now from an empathy point of view, right? And my mind is seeing them not as other, but as myself. What would lead me to blast music on the street at 8 o'clock at night? And so I approached the men and they already were guarded. I could tell they were like, what's this woman getting ready to come and do? Right. Like they could Mm -hmm. tell I just moved in. They know their community. Oh, she's coming in. You know, I am a doctor. I have certain privileges. I am gentrifying the neighborhood, even though I'm a black person. I am bringing a new um, experience into this community that was not there before. And so I know they were like this new person coming over here, probably going to yell at us. And I just said, excuse me, I just moved here. And they were like, "Mm hmm. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> they turned the music down a little bit. Um, it was a moment when they were like, what? What? I can't hear you. And I just waited for them to turn it down. And um, I said, I just moved here. I want you to look at that room right there. And I pointed to the room and I said, I have a five-year-old little girl, sweet little black girl. She's amazing. You may have seen her. I think she's like the best kid I've met. Um, she's trying to sleep and I want her future to be amazing. And I know that she needs rest. I don't know what time you normally play your music, 
But I want to adjust our household to what you do because you were here first. What time do you normally turn your music down? What time do you normally play it? So we can adjust her sleep. Um, we can adjust our schedule in a day. And both of the men looked at each other and then they looked at me and they said, you know what, sis? All right. That's how you talk to somebody. Mm-hmm. No problem. No problem. That's what? Never again. Never on this block will anyone play music after 8 p.m. They're like, and if you have a problem with anybody on this block, you come and see us. We got your back. You're going to raise those kids over there. They're going to be smart. And it started this beautiful relationship. And I got to know the rest of the blog. And we speak in the morning. And my kids say good morning to them. And they say good morning to them. And it's a whole house. This going, how's that going? Oh, it's great. Oh, I like that song you played. Oh, that song's nostalgic. And we built community. And my heart was pounding so hard. I felt like it was going to run out of my chest and leave, right? Like, it was Mm -hmm. horrifying. It was scary to go and approach men um, on the street. It was getting dark. I felt really afraid, and I had to be honest with that. Now, the other thing that they said is, like, um, some woman just came over here and told us to turn down the music, and she said we were so ignorant, and I don't just respect women but i was like b get out my face (laughs) (laughs) but you the way you spoke to us we're gonna turn the music down and i was just like wow it is amazing Mm -hmm. how if you engage people in their humanity how they can respond now they could have very well cussed me out and said get out my face i don't even know you how dare you talk to me about my music and that would have been what it was right but i know that i had a value-driven moment with them and not an emotion-driven one. I could have been angry. How dare you blast your music, right? But instead, it's about really belonging. You know, this is their home. It is now my home. But they have equal say in this community. And even if I don't give them equal say, they're going to take their equal say. So how can we have a circle way where no one is the center? And so they still play their music. You know, they turn it down at a certain point. They go up the street. We laugh. It's beautiful. It's lovely. I, sometimes I make music requests. Um, but this is the type of work that I'm talking about we need to do. So looking in the mirror. But then the second part of that is being able to look out the window and understand what someone else's experience is. So I had to look in the mirror at myself and challenge myself. I had to look out the mirror, I'm out the window and think about what they need. And then the third component of that is about accountability. You know, it's looking in the mirror, it's looking out the window and then creating the home. And being accountable for that. I am equally as accountable to anyone else and to making this world a better place so this next generation of children are not infected with this horrific history that we have as humans of being terrible to each other based on the bodies that we live in. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for sharing. I really, really appreciate it. Um, It was was beautiful. Um, Yeah, I really, really appreciate it. Is there anything that you'd want to, you know, just kind of closing things, any other comments that you'd want to leave before we wrap up here? Um, I don't think so. I say I don't think so, and then I'm going to give you a comment, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> like that's what I, that people do, like, I have nothing else to say, but I'll say one more thing. Um, you know, I think the, the biggest thing is this. When it's all said and done, and you... I, us, we go to wherever we go when our our time is up on this planet, in this body, in this mindfulness space, wherever we live in our, our brains. I want us to be able to say that we are proud 
of how we showed up, that we showed up with integrity. And to me, that's what this work is about, is to every day have more integrity, every day to have more empathy, more compassion, and every day to have more humanity. Racism, prejudice, and bias is a humanitarian crisis. And it is going to require us to view it that way and to really hold ourselves individually and collectively accountable for change. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Thank you. Thank you very much for your time. I really, I really appreciate it. The insight that you have is, is tremendous. And I think it is very, very important. So I really appreciate you taking the time for the interview. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for this space. You're welcome.